My name is Alex Kashuta, and this is the Subversive Podcast. It's an excuse for me to talk to some of the most interesting people on the heterodox to heretic spectrum. Everyone from iconoclast philosophers to rogue scientists to real post-BuzzFeed journalists and our true intellectual elite, Twitter anonymous accounts. In short, they're quite subversive. Enjoy. Today I'm joined by Rob Henderson. Rob is a student of human nature. He is um, a writer. He focuses on psychology, on social class, and um, on success. And he is the the father of the concept of of luxury beliefs, which has been uh, talked about a lot in our circles. Uh, So welcome, and thanks for, for coming on. Thank you, Alex. Great to be here. Excellent. So, um... One thing that I, I really uh, love about your work is your newsletter. So that's that's one thing people should sign up for. It's, it's a um, it's a newsletter all around human nature, and it goes really deep into evolutionary psychology. And there's always some mind blowing tidbit in in your in your newsletter. So um, what's what's the exact name of the newsletter? Uh, I don't really have a, a firm name for it. You know, some, I think on my website or on the link, it's like the Rob Henderson newsletter, but I, it does center on on this theme of human nature, and it's just sort of a eclectic collection of essays. You know, centered like you said on evolutionary psychology, philosophy, history, sociology, whatever I've been thinking about that week. Okay, perfect. Uh, I mean, definitely everyone check it out. I mean, it's uh, it's something I've been I've been uh, reading weekly, um, and I think what we what we share is this fascination with with evolutionary psychology and um, and kind of the the insights that it, that it offers to our, our modern existence because a lot of the stuff that we hear nowadays is uh, about social construction and about you know how. Um, a lot of the phenomena that we see are downstream from society, downstream from, you know, ways of living that have been, uh, you know, instantiated by power structures, either historically or currently. Um, and kind of evolutionary psychology offers the, in a way, the opposite view. It's like, okay, there are things deep inside you that are, you know, that have been there for a long time and that act in certain ways um, that might be predictable. Um, and I think what people usually um, say regarding that is that you don't want to fall into the, the naturalistic fallacy to say that, you know, if you have uh, certain tendencies as a human or certain patterns, uh, you don't want to say, okay, this is how it has to be. Um, I'm curious what, what you think is the limit between these two, because these are two really, you know, opposing views. Um, you know, you can either be someone who believes that, okay, humans are instinctive creatures, um, you know, uh, we, we act on, on patterns that, you know, are, are built into our uh, evolutionary matrix or, or, or our makeup, um, or it's, it's, you know, social construction and kind of how, as an individual, it's, for me, I know it's, it's kind of weird to, to, to think about this stuff because I observe these patterns in myself and the more I understand evolutionary psychology, the more I, I see them in me and in society, but kind of how do you deal with that on an individual level? Like how, what should your perspective be? Like, um, is an instinct less of an instinct if you know about it? 
Yeah, yeah, it's an interesting question. Uh, so, like you said, evolutionary psychology does tend to focus on, you know, sort of more, you know, this word is controversial, but but some, some more innate drives and instincts and behaviors and and intuitions and so on that that humans tend to share. I think those are important to understand, just because you like you. So you mentioned the naturalistic fallacy that just because you know, things tend to be a certain way that doesn't necessarily mean that's how they should be. But I think that if you have an idea of how things should be, you should at first understand before you get to that step, at least understand how things are. Uh, and if you want to understand how things are, I think evolutionary psychology is a useful lens to understand that. Um, but, you know, your point about you know, whether we should, you know, I, I guess like to, to, to the extent that self-knowledge is useful, uh, or, or is it useful, you know, understanding these these patterns within ourselves, um, why we act in certain ways, the social dynamics that we have maybe with our partners or our friends or our parents or whatever. Um, I think, at least for me, I'm semi-optimistic that, you know, they, they can help, uh, but some people are more pessimistic. I, I, I Something that just came to mind was this interview uh, I think this was a couple of years ago with Sam Harris and Daniel Kahneman. And Sam Harris asked Kahneman, who's, you know, he, he wrote Thinking Fast and Slow. He's sort of like, you know, the the originator of this idea of cognitive biases, um, or at least, you know, one of them. And so Sam Harris asked him, you know, since you know all about cognitive bias and how our attention can be captured and hijacked and so on, you know, are you better able to overcome those biases? And, and Kahneman responded, oh, not at all. Like, just, you know, just because you're aware of them, just because you sort of know about them and, and so on, doesn't necessarily mean you'll, like, internalize it and recognize it and and uh, sort of overcome all of those biases. Um, I guess I'm more optimistic than that, but I don't think you can fully overcome it. Like, just because, for example, you know that when you feel a certain sensation in your stomach and you're hungry, you think, well, that's hunger. Suddenly, the, the hunger doesn't go away. You still feel that, right? And so you can sort of feel all the all the other kinds of drives in our in our social lives and our romantic lives too just because you understand it doesn't mean it suddenly vanishes um but yeah i've been thinking a lot about this other part of evolutionary psychology too i think this was he was like the biologist eo wilson said something like um that genes hold culture on a leash meaning that you know Basically, we are sort of innately, it's just something imprisoned by our biology. And so you can't build a certain, you know, different kinds of cultures based on that. There are limitations to what you can do. But I've also been thinking in the opposite direction, too, that culture holds genes on a leash or culture can hold biology on a leash. I mean, some of our uh, tendencies and behaviors and, and impulses are, are not particularly uh, you know, flattering. And culture can be one way to constrain those or redirect those impulses. So I think it goes both ways. Um, I'm not like, you know, fully this kind of Darwinian person where all of our drives are how they are and we should do anything about it. I think there are uh, clever ways that culture can constrain it too. Yeah, I think one of the, um, one of the big subjects recently has been the, um, the, the meme of polyamory, like this is kind of the, what's, what's come up and a lot of people are uh, either polyamorous or experimenting with these lifestyles. I mean, I'm curious from, from your, you know, kind of evolutionarily informed perspective, um, polyamory as it's, as it's seen at the moment. So this would be kind of 
essentially the free love school of, you know, multiple people of different genders dating multiple people with a very kind of contractual basis of, of you know, who does what, um, you know, how, how robust in an evolutionary sense is this uh, lifestyle? <laughs> well, I mean, so if you look at the anthropological research, like one of the most maybe the most famous uh, work, a uh, piece of work on this is um, Hierarchy in the Forest by Christopher Bame, I think is how his last name is pronounced. Uh, incredible book. And he basically just sort of outlines how uh, modern day hunter-gatherer societies look, how, you know, based on, based on the evidence that anthropologists have collected, what they looked like in the past. And essentially what it looks like, and this is just very broad, very roughly speaking here, that um, you know, human societies were more or less monogamous uh, up until, say, the the rise of agriculture, maybe ten or twelve thousand years ago. Uh, and and part of the reason for this is simply because uh, you know nomadic hunter gatherers or hunter foragers or whatever the term is now for them. Uh, you know, basically, if you're moving every so often to find, in search of food, in search of water, in search of whatever, you you know, you're not sort of staying in one place, um, males can't accumulate vast amounts of wealth. They can't organize large armies. They can't basically collect enough power to, uh, to dominate others in such a way as to collect many, many wives uh, or concubines or whatever. So in those kinds of nomadic societies, usually men had one wife. Sometimes if they were like the big man or like the boss of the community, they might have two or three, but that was somewhat rare. But then with the rise of agriculture, uh, people were able to stay in one place, grow their own food, uh, stockpile resources, money, soldiers, and so on. And then this is when you get like kings and emperors and, and male, you know, sort of dominant leader types who could then suddenly have hundreds or thousands of wives and create a, a society such that like you'll have whatever eunuchs to guard and um, men who you can sort of direct in different directions to to basically play on their sexual desires and, and to go to war to capture uh, or, or to uh, go to war against other other communities other groups um, and then so more recently and, and this is a, a lot of a lot of the work uh, or a lot of the the ideas that I'm talking about now come from the book uh, the weirdest people in the world from Harvard scientist uh, Joe Henrik, and he's basically said that, like with the rise of the Western Church and Christianity, this is sort of when things shifted more once again towards towards monogamy. So actually, for most of our evolutionary history, we were monogamous, you know, and then there was a very very brief interim uh, where we weren't. So now that we're sort of, I, I guess, like maybe I, I actually don't know the numbers on this. If you would happen to know the numbers, I'd be curious. How many people are polyamorous? I know it's sort of trendy and popular among more prestige media. Um, but at least like regular people I know who aren't like associated with universities and so on, I, I don't think it's catching on yet with them. I hope it doesn't. But uh, what what yeah. what have you heard about its popularity? To be honest, I mean I'm I'm just in these circles. I was and I used to work in tech in London, so that was was really popular in in, in those circles. Um, which is like tech in London is kind of a little bit of a carbon copy of Silicon Valley environments. So it's I think it's it's quite Maybe it's a bit loud because it's amplified for me in, in those circles. I don't, I don't really know the numbers, but I do think 
because uh, it's, you know, it's espoused by a lot of people, you know, with high status, it does kind of have a chance of, of morphing into one of one of them luxury beliefs that you keep talking about. So that's why I'm, I'm a bit um, not concerned, but I've, I've been thinking about, you know, this, uh, this concept of, you know, having uh, a high, high caste uh, adopt ideas that, you know, are can, can be, you know, they can adopt them flexibly because they have buffers, you know, they, they have buffers that, you know, are social buffers, money buffers, um, reputation buffers, things like that, that people in, you know, lower, lower uh, strata don't have. So, yeah, I mean, I feel right. like polyamory for me, this is a bit of a contender there because at least in the discourse, you know, on Twitter and stuff like that, it's, it's amplified and a lot of push uh, is, is towards destigmatizing and normalizing things like this. And I don't know. It, it, uh, yeah. I don't know if it's, it's that good of an idea. Well, so, so just for the listeners, uh, really, so, so luxury beliefs, which I, I, I'm imagining, like, you know, maybe you've, you've mentioned this idea before, but uh just, just to get it out there, the luxury beliefs idea, uh, I've defined it as uh, ideas and opinions that confer status on the upper class while inflicting costs, uh, oftentimes on the lower classes. Uh, and and I, I definitely think that polyamory would be a contender, like you're saying. Um, you know, in one of my luxury beliefs essays, I, uh, I tell a story. So a friend of mine, uh, he might have graduated recently, but at least at this point, he was attending uh, a, a pretty, you know, one of these fancy universities. And he was telling me, like, you know, when I go on Tinder uh, and I set my radius to like one mile, just like right around the university, basically. Um, so many of these, like, you know, the the women that I match with are, are students, of course. And, you know, something like half of them have like, you know, open relationship, poly, you know, sort of no strings, like basically very sexually open, uh, sexually fluid, whatever, like not interested in, in what you might think of as like just a, a typical monogamous relationship. Uh, and then he uh, went on to say that when he um, extended his radius on Tinder to include the rest of the city, which like the outskirts of the city are actually like more working class, more poor people. Um, then he started to see profiles of young women. Uh, and he said about half of them were single moms. And to me, this is uh, uh, quite a quite a stark example of, of a luxury belief, such that the sort of beliefs that are broadcast by the former, i.e., the, the class that tends to go to elite universities, trickle down and over time uh, influence the behavior of the latter of these uh, young working class women, who um, you know, like you're saying, they don't have. Uh, the same amount of social capital, cultural capital, uh, access resources, and so on to withstand uh, a sort of sexually promiscuous lifestyle. Uh, and not only that, I mean, I, I haven't talked as much about this, but I've been thinking more about this too, is that like, you know, I, I guess, I don't know if this would count as social capital necessarily, but the kinds of people who are around them Look, I grew up with these kind of guys too. So, so for better or worse, if you're a young woman at an elite university, the kinds of guys you're fooling around with or whatever, like if something were to happen, they're they're more likely to help you out. Whereas, you know, a lot of like poor working class males, if something were to happen, they're not going to necessarily be the most helpful people in emergency situations. So, that is another sort of aspect of this too, romantic capital, however you want to put it, that the guys you're fooling around with, they may also not be uh, ideal in, in certain circumstances, depending on your social class. 
Yeah. Yeah, I feel like if you were to kind of go go back to maybe like the 60s, even even the 50s, depending on on how uh, how how attentively you want to look at the data, um, I think you know the, the sexual revolution itself uh, in in certain ways, and um, kind of that plus the pill, which is kind of like the the technological amplifier or uh, enabler of the sexual revolution to kind of uh, let it let it run its course. Um, you know, that, I feel like that was one of the not the first dominoes or many dominoes in history, but at least for the first dominoes for a lot of stuff that we now call, you know, dysfunction in, in the dating market. So um, I'm curious because you talk a lot about kind of these kind of almost like game theoretical dynamics between men and women, you know, when there are, you know, more men than women in a, in a situation, you know, kind of the, the game theory of the, the dating market shifts and, and the other way around. Uh, I'm curious what you see, like the, the impact of the birth control pill was because, um, there's, there's this really interesting essay by Heather McDonald, and I refer to it a lot. Uh, it's the kind of the, the sexual default essay where, you know, once the sexual revolution hit, uh, hit uh, once the pill became common and everyone was taking it, it became kind of the, the onus was put on women to say no to sex rather than no to sex being kind of the standard in society saying, okay, no sex before marriage is that's probably what we all agree to do. But, you know, there's going to be some defectors. Some people will be married and have a baby while they're at the wedding ceremony. But, but that would kind of be the outliers. So kind of the, the standard shifted because now, you know, why shouldn't you say no to sex? Cause you're a free woman. Uh, you know, you, you have the pill, you're, you're completely empowered. So I don't know. That's, that's a lot to put on you, but, but kind of, you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's it's a it's an interesting question. I mean, of course, it's always hard to disentangle, you know, technology and culture and all of these things that might have uh, given rise to these uh, these shifts in culture over the last whatever sixty years or so. Um, but yeah, I mean, so so one thing. I remember the first time I came across this this statistic. I mean, it, it shocked me. And, and then, like when I shared it with other people, like a lot of people ended up sharing it later on. Uh, and this has been documented by so both the, the social scientist Charles Murray as well as uh, the Harvard uh, professor uh, Robert Putnam have both um, shared data on this, showing that in 1960, uh, you know, working class and upper class parents or, or families rather, so 95% of children born to upper class and working class families, 95% uh, of them were were born to both of their birth parents and lived with both of their birth parents. Uh, and then by 2005, um, for the upper class, it had dropped to 85%. So it was 95%, now it's 85%. So there was a slight dip among the upper class. But for the working class, it was 95% in 1960. And by 2005, it had dropped to 30%. So it was this huge drop off such that in 1960, families basically looked the same regardless of class. And then by the uh, mid 2000s, uh, it's like two different planets, basically. Um, and Perhaps, yeah. I mean, I, I wouldn't be surprised at all if, if the pill had something to do with this. I'm reminded of this, um, this study by these Brookings researchers. I can't, they had a name for it too, because there were two researchers and this phenomenon was named after them. But um, basically, they collected a bunch of data, a bunch of analysis, and found essentially that reproductive technology may have actually contributed to uh, more broken families, unwanted children, single motherhood. Uh, and the idea here was that before there were basically a lot of, well, there were a lot of marriages because for men, if they wanted to have sex, they had to get married. They had no choice. So if they wanted, you know, it's just, that's what you had to do. And so they were more likely to get married and then have sex and then have children. On the other hand, um, 
you know, sometimes there was premarital sex going on back then, but uh, there was this sort of cultural expectation of shotgun marriages. So if a man were to get a woman pregnant and they weren't married, uh, society was set up such that you, you know, the man was pressured to marry the woman. Okay. But then once the pill uh, appeared on the scene, um, men no longer felt an obligation or a duty to women anymore uh, if they had sex with them. Uh, sort of crudely, the idea was that, like, oh, if they have sex and the woman gets pregnant, well, it's your fault. Like, you didn't have to get pregnant. The default is you don't get pregnant. And if you do, it's, you know, that's on you. Why is, why is that my problem? Uh, and so the way the researchers put it was that once motherhood became a biological choice for women, then fatherhood became a social choice for men. Uh, and it wasn't just the, you know, the, the dynamics between the man and the woman, but also the broader community. So in the past, if a man got a woman pregnant, the the neighborhood and the community were like, you need to marry her, you need to take care of her. But once the pill came on the scene, then it was like, well, you know, does he need to stay? She got pregnant. Whose fault was it really? Uh, and so it had these sort of trickle down effects. Um, and I, you know, I always find it interesting, you know, these sort of second order consequences that really I don't think anyone, I doubt anyone in 1960 would have thought that way. They just think like, here's this pill. Um, you know, if you go back to like 1955 and you tell people, you know, if you just asked people a question that in the future there will be this sort of magical inexpensive pill that would uh you know control whether someone got pregnant whether you would have children do you think in the future there will be more single mothers or fewer do you think there will be sort of more stable families or fewer orphanages foster care whatever i would imagine you know, i'd be very surprised if if anyone said there would be more right i mean this is this pill it's magic why would why would you have more um but that's not the way things went yeah, absolutely. That that just makes me think about all the ways in, in which, you know, technology has helped us decouple um, kind of our our evolutionary trajectory from, you know, because there are all sorts of stimuli in our environment that, you know, you know, if someone's attractive, then, you know, you're, you're kind of almost magnetically attracted to them. Um, you know, if, if something's sweet, if you see honey, you're like, yeah, I really want that sweet thing. And, you know, these, these have been, these are pretty useful things to have in like an ancestral environment where calories are scarce and, you know, you, you really want to, <laughs> want to make with the best, you know, the, the most warrior like guy you can find and things like that. Um, but now you essentially have the market turning these things around and kind of pointing them at you in almost an aggressive fashion. Like you have, you know, every, everything has super normal stimuli baked in. So all these like, you know, crazy amounts of, of sweetness, crazy amounts of, you know, hyper palatable fat, you know, uh, pornography, all of these effects. Um, and they're slowly decoupling us from, you know, what, what we're built to, to seek. Um, or they're, they're pointing us kind of towards these, these kind of uh, commoditized versions of these things like, you know, pornography is, you know, is your attraction to, to, you know, the other sex. Uh, but it's, it's kind of, it's, it's just one part of it. Um, it doesn't really do what it says it does. It doesn't lead to you having children. It leads to you spending more time in your basement or, you know, wherever, wherever the act takes place. Um, and it's not, you know, it's, it's, I don't know. It's to me, it feels a little bit kind of almost apocalyptic and dystopian that this is allowed to go on in this, you know, or even encouraged because this is essentially economic growth. You know, this is this is what our economy is based on milking, milking our, our brains for, for stimulus. Yeah, I wrote this um, this post for the Institute of Family Studies website. I think it was last year. Um, 
because I so I came across this interesting study on in Australia on jewel beetles, and basically what these researchers, these are biologists, they found um, that this the population of jewel beetles in some some region of Australia was dying out, and when they went to investigate, they found that the male jewel beetles um, were basically copulating with uh, with beer bottles. So you know whatever beer beer drinkers would leave their bottles on the ground. And the bottom of the bottles had these, you know, it was like the color and the ridges and everything looked basically like a female beetle. And so the male beetles would just climb on them and, you know, do their thing. And then they were sort of satisfied by that. And then they wouldn't sort of reproduce with actual female beetles. It was a sort of like super normal stimulus, like you're saying. Um, and so in that post, I basically sort of drew, the, drew this analogy to, to digital porn where you know, there's this thing, it sort of looks like the real thing. It's, it's uh, you know, very, very pleasurable and so on, but we're basically being hijacked. You know, we're sort of being hijacked by this very alluring thing that's not real. And this may also be, you know, sort of one reason why the birth rate is declining, uh, especially in developed countries, right? Where you have access to all these things. I mean, yeah, yeah. I mean, it's such a new thing that I, I remember, I, I can't remember where I read this, but and I was talking to a friend of mine recently about this too, about like why there haven't been more uh, studies on this, on sort of the effects of pornography. Maybe, maybe there are some whatever political reasons, but but I think like just just practically, like just you, it's hard to it's hard to do this because there are no young men who have never been exposed to porn. Um, it's just like you can, you can't have a control group basically, right? Like you can't like okay, this group hasn't watched porn, this group has, and let's see what happens or whatever. Look, look at their brain structure, behaviors, habits, whatever. Yeah. The, the um, Amish maybe, <laughs> but there is still rumspring over there. I'm sure I'm sure they're loading up on porn that year. That's <laughs> a good point. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, if we can collect some some Amish guy or like whatever, like if we can get some some uh, hunter gatherers or something. So, but um, but yeah, I mean, just like uh, in terms of like a convenient sample, you can't just go to a university and collect some men who haven't seen it, like basically every no college way. boy, right? <laughs> and so what do you like, you know, how would you even study this? Um, and yeah, I've, I've seen like some very interesting data, for example, on um, sort of de declining uh, rates of sexual activity among young people. Um, I saw this stat on, so this was comparing 2008 to 2018. Which is like basically the, the period of time when like streaming and porn and smartphones and all those things started to take off over those you know, roughly 10 years or so. Uh, and something like in 2008, it was something like, I can't remember the specific, but it was around 15% of young men reported not having sex in the previous year. And then by 2018, it had basically doubled to about 30%. Uh, so we twice as many men now, just like 30% is a lot, but yeah, twice as many young men have said like they're not having sex anymore. And for women, there was a slight increase. It was some, it went from something like ten percent to like fifteen or eighteen percent. So it was like a noticeable jump, but not nearly to the same same extent as it was for men. And I think like perhaps one reason is just because like on average, men are more likely to watch porn and sort of fulfill their sexual uh, you know appetites in that way. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think it's also kind of almost overlapping with the rise of app dating, which kind of changes the the, the landscape even more. Um, and it's essentially kind of an, an extra liberatory uh, layer to it. Like it really kind of pumps up the sexual liberation in the sense that, um, you know, you kind of have 
a database of people that you can filter through the most uh, the most superficial or kind of like just top line things that you're interested in. And if you're a woman uh, and you match with a guy who you know matches your criteria, he will sleep with you under the ambiguous term of dating. But he'll probably not date you in in the more you know classical sense, or you know kind of offer you the opportunity to have a relationship. So um, you know you you see that you know that the difference between how many women are having sex and how many men are having sex that delta could also be explained maybe by the fact that some women are having sex with the same same set of guys, which are you know they're not represented in that sample. Yeah, I mean that's that's a great point. Uh, I, I've seen so I've I've you know, seeing the data on on Tinder and on dating apps, I've even talked to some of the, the sort of chief product officer and some other people at Tinder trying to understand what's going on with it. And I definitely think there's something, something going on here with, uh, say, like smaller numbers of men um, accumulating the majority of the matches. I see it even in, in my own sort of friend groups. Um, I have a friend. He has a girlfriend now, so he sort of you know, settled down. We'll see. We'll see how long. It <laughs> but like, you know, he settled down for now. But for a while, you know, he was going hard on Tinder. Like he had that, like upwards of like twenty thousand matches at some point. Um, and Tinder identified him as like I don't know a prime user or start. I don't. know. They had some kind of name <laughs> for it, and they gave him all these perks and freebies and like I don't know, basically like doing whatever they could to keep him on that app. Because guys like that are the reason why women use the app, right? Like women aren't on the app to meet the, you know, 50th percentile man. They're looking for like, you know, guys like my friend, this, right? This guy, yeah. Yeah. And so they were like, you know, whatever whatever they were doing for him and lifting all these restrictions and doing all these things for him on the app to allow him to match with more women. And he got like really sucked into it. But um, then like I have other friends who are just sort of more typical guys. You know, they're not bad looking. They're just regular dudes. But like. They might get a couple matches a week, something like that. You know, they, and they, of course, like, you know, they tell me some of these girls will flake or like they don't meet up or whatever. It's just like, it's much harder for them. Um, and then if you look at the actual data on Tinder, it basically aligns with this where, so if I get these numbers right, it was something like uh, men will like 65% of the women that they see on Tinder. Um, so basically, like the default for them is they will like the woman, they will swipe on that woman. Whereas for women, it's basically the reverse, where they swipe on four or five percent. I think I say actually four point five percent of the male profiles they see. So the default for them is like no way, unless it happens to meet meet like very specific criteria. Um, and so of course, like over time, that dynamic will play out such that um, those four point five percent of men will say, dominate or sort of uh, match or hook up with those 65% of women. And other research on this has been basically borne out where, you know, there's that sort of 80-20 rule where, what, 20% of the men are sleeping with 80% of the women or something like that. Um, and so a lot of young guys, I, I see them. Well, I mean, it's it's breeding resentment and anger, I think, on both sides. But, you know, of course, most of my friends tend to be men. And I'm, I'm seeing, like, just more like, you know, I, I guess maybe this is somewhat counterintuitive, but the guys I know who are especially successful on the dating apps are the most cynical and the say like, you know, less, let's say less respectful of women than you might want them to be. And the guys who maybe aren't so successful on the dating apps who aren't really having much luck, 
um, they still have like a little bit of that naive optimism, uh, but it's sort of for many of them turning into, I guess, more bleak outlook of like, well, maybe they'll never meet someone. And then some of them will retreat into like video games or porn or just like isolating themselves. Yeah. It's, it's interesting kind of what this dynamic does, because I feel like it, it kind of creates this, this false scarcity of men in, in the app, where essentially because women don't really engage with the, the lower half of, of guys and they see that they match with these guys that they really like, um, you know, it's like, OK, there's there's these guys we can date. But essentially, the, 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 the dating is not necessarily, you know, it, it doesn't mean what you think it means. It just means that, you know, they'll, they will meet up with you. You know, it's, it's a Tuesday night. It might be a slow night. And then you, you get to go have a drink with this guy. And you're like, okay, I know what my league is now. And it's like, no, <laughs> that's, that's not what this is. And I feel like it's because there's essentially two markets interacting there. You know, there's this market for long-term relationships and the market for sex, which are two different things, but it's all like under the banner of dating, you know, we're all just dating here. So I feel like um, a, a lot of the women who kind of go through through these cycles, they, they do end up a little bit cynical and a little bit desperate. So, you know, I, I'm sure that, you know, the, the guys, you know, the, the more successful guys that you meet might have might be kind of rubbing up against these like, kind of desperate women and they are like you know these these girls you know they they they're, they're kind of weird because they're, they're weird by just the, the nature of the interactions that they've been having because they they're rejected quite constantly by people and they're you know yeah. they're antsy <laughs> that's for sure yeah yeah that's an interesting point i mean like yeah that's yeah i hadn't i hadn't considered it from from that that angle before but like yeah, it, it totally makes sense to me why why women would would be sort of angry uh, too from using these apps often enough. Like seeing it from the male perspective, like I know guys who like you know some of them turn it into a game where they're like, how many how many you know girls from Tinder can I meet in one day, kind of thing, or like how many can I sleep with in this period of time from the, these apps, and you know if you're a woman, you know I I could easily imagine that like you know, hearing stories like that or meeting guys like that or whatever, like that's going to, to sort of give rise to some, some anger too. Um, but we're all sort of stuck in a bad equilibrium, right? Because like, if you're a guy and you're good looking and whatever, like, that's like going to be the deep, like, why wouldn't you do that? Like, you can be told, like, I've told some younger guys too, like, it's going to be fun. But if you keep doing this, you're going to damage yourself. Like, it's just going to happen. You're going to do damage yourself in ways that you don't understand. But if you're 21 and you're just looking to have fun, like, like there's no stopping them. And I guess probably the same thing for women, too. And there's like there's no like advice or like soft way of putting it such that people will just like listen and, and go along with it. Like the apps are there. They're available. Everyone's using them. Um, I think now online dating or dating apps are like the number one way people meet now, especially for, for like younger people. Gen, Gen, was it Gen Z and millennials are meeting people almost solely, it seems, through through online, such that now it's, things have flipped. I, I'm just old enough to remember when on, online dating or internet dating was sort of seen as weird. I, like, when I first came out, I, I, I've heard, like, you know, read that it was, like, extremely weird, like, in the 90s to meet someone online. It was just a really weird thing. Mm -hmm. uh, and when I was, like, you know, younger, uh, it was, like, kind of weird, but kind of okay, whatever. But now it's, like, it's flipped such that online or apps are the way you meet. And if you meet someone in person, that's the novelty or that's unusual or like that's sketchy. Like 
you just met him in person or did you met her? Like, what do you know about them? Did you Facebook stalk them or look them up on Instagram? Like you need all that online information. Meeting someone in person is just, you know, that's, that's weird now. Yeah. Yeah. It, I, I almost remember the day I can pinpoint almost <laughs> the, the, the month where it happened. Like, uh, you know, I, I remember that kind of, there was kind of this expectation that if you go to like a club or a bar as a girl, someone will come and chat you up, you know, but, um, at one point, you could just see it became like 1, 1 a.m., 2 a.m. People would just take out their phones and start swiping instead of looking around and start talking. And, okay. you know, at, at the beginning, you were like, okay, you know, is it, have I have I lost it? <laughs> Don't I have to post show anymore? But then I realized, you know, people just on their phones and just trying to, trying to sort this out in a more frictionless way. So it's, it, it is pretty, pretty strange. Um, and that was maybe five or six years ago. I feel like that's kind of when when flipped in, in major urban areas, like obviously not. Who knows? Yeah, that's yeah. I mean, that's another aspect too. too. Like, I, I mean, I remember. So, you know, when I started going out to bars, this is like the early 2010s. Um, you know, Tinder, I think it was, uh, you know, created or established or whatever in 2012. And it didn't really take off until a couple of years after that. So, like, I remember when there was like no Tinder, basically. And smartphones were kind of a thing, but not really. And like, you know, you could go to bars and meet people and they would talk to you. And there was no, um, isn't there a phrase like, uh, where people look at their fubbing, right? Like fubbing, I guess, is like snubbing, but with the phone where they look at their phone while they're oh. talking to you. Um, no, there was none of that, uh, or very little at least. Um, and yeah, I remember like it was whatever. It was still like hookup culture. It was still kind of you know, gross or whatever, but like it, it wasn't as bad as it was, as it is today. Um, and so I guess like one other, you know, what I was gonna talk about. So one other, you know, component to this is that people are now like guys are now at least afraid of asking women out in person. Like why would they take that sort of social risk and experience that in-person, um, rejection, which is, you know, unpleasant or whatever. Like, why would they do that if they could just, like, pull out their phone and talk to someone that way and sort of, like, whoever they match with, at least they have that minimal level of, in, like, that, that kind of information of, like, well, at least they think I'm attractive enough to, to match with me. Um, whereas in person, you don't really have any of that kind of information. It's, it's less transparent. Um, yeah. I've heard some other interesting speculations, too, I, you know, basically suggesting that, you know, with the rise of the uh, Me Too movement and... I don't know, harassment claims and so on, Title IX on U.S. college campus, like basically all of these things are instilling a sense of anxiety or fear among young men such that like, I don't want to ask someone out and then that get turned into something else and, mm. you know, yeah. face accusations. So instead I'll, you know, just use my phone. Yeah, for sure. I've actually had a had a, um, a so-called radical feminist on on the podcast recently, Louise Perry, and and we were talking about the same thing. And I think she kind of traces this uh, the issue of Me Too kind of back almost you know through the sexual revolution to this flipping in, in norms because you know back in the day, whatever you think about you know kind of regulated sexuality for young people, there was kind of you would kind of know what to expect. 
but now because you know everything's liberalized and you know everything's kind of consent based, consent is a quite a fuzzy norm, especially you know in cases of inebriation or cases of you know someone likes you maybe more than you like them, your friends, you're not friends, things like that. So things are very ambiguous at the moment. Um, so kind of this this um, deconstruction of of you know standard norms or and replacement with no norms at all except for this you know weird norm of consent which you know means many things to many people. Um, so I think I, I thought that that was a really interesting point because it's like okay you know in a way Me Too has a point even if it's you know like the Aziz Ansari case that was what we were discussing which is a case where things were very very ambiguous it was kind of an unpleasant experience, which was then kind of retconned into, oh, it was rape by some more extreme feminists and, and you know, people saying, okay, this is, you know, it's not good. But people didn't really know what language to use to say it's not good. But essentially, <laughs> you know, it was like the only language they had was it was non-consensual, therefore it was rape. But it was, it was a, 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 these people didn't have the skills to negotiate this situation. She didn't know how to communicate with him. He didn't know what she wanted. So this is total ambiguity is, is something that women are not happy with, but there's no language to describe it except for, you know, what weird, like extreme feminists have, have left us with. Like, yeah, everything is rape. Interesting. Yeah. 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 I like that way that you put it, that we don't have the language to, to talk about it. Um, you know, I remember reading, I don't know if I read the whole thing, but I sort of skimmed it and, and, and yeah, I mean, clearly something was going on there that was uncomfortable, it was awkward, whatever. But yeah, now, I mean, it sort of makes sense in, in light of what you're saying that just people didn't know how to express their, their disapproval for it or their discomfort with it, except for the sort of available cultural tropes that we have about consent or um, whatever, like assault or rape or, or whatever. Um, and I think that the lack of the you know, sort of romantic and cultural scripts, probably, I mean, probably those situations are happening every night. Uh, and we just don't hear about it, right? We hear about Aziz Ansari because he's this, you know, big Hollywood star. But those, like, lower level, you know, just regular people are going through that all the time. And, you know, there's probably, like, I would imagine more, like, violence and more just domestic issues as a result of the fact that like people don't really know like how to go about you know asking people if they like them or how to sort of engage in romantic or sexual interactions anymore yeah. we're all just sort and of even, like fumbling yeah it's like uh, even this whole d distinction between you know long-term relationship dating and you know sex dating that you have on the apps i know a lot of women who are really kind of sad that they never end up in the long-term relationship camp you know it's and, and it's they kind of live in this ambiguous space in the middle it's like oh okay we're dating but what is it you know the, the what are we conversation you know is it cool to ask you know are we exclusive all of this stuff is is you know is stuff that they would either like to ask or they're really disappointed that it's, it's not being brought up by the other person you know a lot of like people stuck in like friends with benefits situations if you're a woman you're like okay I'm going to put out and so that, you know, maybe I'll, I'll be graduating to, to the status of girlfriend. And that's just like, you know, so a little bit of like psychological torture for a lot of these girls. And, um, you know, it's it's the ambiguity of the situation kind of promotes promotes the fact, you know, the fact that this is. Yeah. A while back, a friend of mine, uh, he told me a story uh, when he was younger. He started dating this girl. 
um, really liked her. She seemed to really like him. And after like, I don't know, three or four months, he asked her basically point blank, like, would you be my girlfriend? Uh, which is like kind of unusual thing to do these days. Just ask someone that question. And, but he did. And she basically said like, you know, I'm not really sure right now. And like, they were like set to graduate college soon-ish. And I think like she wasn't sure where she was going to go. He wasn't sure where he was going to, you know, that kind of thing. And so she's like, oh, I'm not really sure. Like, you know, so they kept, you know, hanging out or dating or whatever, but she did not, um, you know, agree to be his girlfriend. Uh, but so anyway, like as, uh, you know, sort of as the graduation date approached um, and like they both knew that it was going to end soon after that, she started crying and basically what I from what I gathered she basically said like he asked at the wrong time like you know if he had asked three months after he asked she would have said yes but his her feelings had not reached that point yet but then six months in it did but then you know of course if he, he asks once and gets shot down he's not gonna like ask three months well would you be my girlfriend now well how about now right like he asked <laughs> her once she said no and he was like, all right, so that's that's the status of this relationship is just sort of hanging out and hooking up and having fun, but this isn't going to be serious. And that's where he was. Like, that's sort of where he settled. Uh, but she later on became displeased with it. So, you know, those kinds of situations are playing out all the time too now, I think, where like, as in the past, you know, you would just ask someone and you go steady and they get married and whatever. But now it's like, we never know where we stand with people. Yeah, exactly. I've, I'm curious what you think, like, with, without explicit sexual scripts, without norms, you know, what, whatever they should be, you know, imposed by society, is, is there any way of stopping society turning into essentially clusters of harems and a whole underclass of, of eunuchs or incels? Well, well, what about, like, well, sex robots or, <laughs> I don't know, oh, is God. that like, an incel <laughs> thing? But... Well, as of right now, I, I'm at least short term kind of pessimistic about that question. Like, I just don't really see, um, at least like bottom up, how this is going to change. Um, people, you know, locally, individually, they're sort of doing what is best for them in their environment. And the apps are just like completely taking over. They're dominating now. And I don't really see this slowing down. You know, I, I think it's it's also creating like easier ways to cheat too. Like in the past, if you wanted to cheat, like you had to like you you risk like you know your social circle finding out, your friends, your family, like whatever. Like, but now you can like discreetly match with someone like one or two towns over, like or even in the same town. Like, I think cheating is is going up now too because because the apps have, have just made it so much easier. We'll never know. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's. I mean, yeah, I, I think uh, yeah, fewer people are being honest. Although there is a there are clever ways to get around that because of course if you ask people themselves, you know, have you ever cheated? A lot of people are going to fudge the numbers, say. Eh? But if you ask people, um, if you think of your five closest friends. Uh, how many of them uh, have confided in you that they've been unfaithful? That's an, that's kind of a clever way to get around this. Um, and I think like that number is going up. But, you know, I, I, I hope that we don't end up in this sort of harem situation that we sort of come to our senses and find ways around this. But, you know, hey, capitalism, free market, uh, <laughs> the, the, whatever, the customer's always right. And... I know people, like I mentioned this before, I know people who work in the app and like, they're not thinking about any of this. They're thinking about like how to get more people on the app. Like that's their goal. And like, I don't know if I necessarily blame them. Like that's just, that's their job. But in the meantime, what can we do as individuals against like 
corporations that have, you know, unlimited funds and like super smart behavioral scientists who like sort of know how to get people addicted. So it's, it's, it's a, it's a tough question. Yeah. Yeah. This is, this is, I think one of, one of the biggest questions I'm trying to kind of grapple with myself. I mean, I've, I've turned quite, uh, quite trad in, <laughs> in my thirties and now I'm, I'm married. Uh, I'm, I'm expecting a baby and kind of settled down in a very kind of chill, you know, location in my hometown in, in Eastern Europe. So, uh, you know, things, things are good in, in on my end, but it's, it's definitely not like a big cultural trend. Uh, obviously it's not, ideal for everyone. Not everyone can do this. Not everyone has a small hamlet to return to. You know, there's there's all sorts of layers to this, obviously. And I know it's not necessarily scalable, but um, there, there's also kind of a kind of a tendency for Zoomers, for like, you know, children who are like now teenagers and, and you know, young adults to kind of see through the kind of the sexual revolution and, you know, they, they see the millennials having a bad time with it. And um, I'm curious what you think, you know, do you think there's going to be kind sure. of a deterrent effect um, or will they just kind of pivot to something else like sex robots or? You know? <laughs> <laughs> oh, so, so just so I understand. So you're saying that the younger generation uh, are looking at sort of people maybe roughly around our age and seeing like how tough it is for the sort of millennials and they will sort of, there'll be like a yeah. pendulum swing. Yeah, I mean, that um, typically is because, you know, you kind of have the 1950s were kind of a, a reaction to a more crazy flapper times, uh, you know, and, and there's always a little bit of, a, of an up and down. So I think now we're probably in for a correction for the, for the sexual revolution. Obviously, with the pill, you've got a completely different landscape. But um, I'm curious to if you see that or if there's any data. I, I don't know. I, this is just all anecdata that I'm bringing to the table here. But it seems like the uh, like the Zoomers are bit more hmm, sus- yeah. you know suspicious of, of all of this you know of the only fans and all that you know so yeah I don't I don't have any data off the top of my head on on like whether there will be a sort of pendulum swing or if there is one but you know in the U.S. there's um this this uh what writer journalist uh Matthew Iglesias he wrote this book One Billion Americans um, I don't know. I haven't read the book, but I think like the the broad strokes or something like you know basically we should open the borders and just like let a billion people into the U.S. and like promote fertility and pronatalism and so on. Um, and so like you know of course a lot of people on the right thought this idea was totally crazy, but there is a a friend of mine, so Razib Khan, he's a geneticist. He actually likes the idea of opening the borders and letting people in because he thinks. Basically, he thinks that American culture is kind of rotten and that the only way to like, like whatever, di- diverted or, or redirected in another direction is with this massive exogenous shock. And so if you let in a billion people from whatever, Brazil and India and Southeast Asia and whatever, like that, that would have like such a tremendous, like basically in that case, the Americans would have to assimilate to the their new culture rather than vice versa, where the immigrants would assimilate to American culture, which is basically what happens. So that, like right now, Hispanic, Asian immigrants, they tend to, you know, they're, they're, they're new arrivals in first gen. They tend to have their own sort of, you know, cultural habits and, and they have a relatively high birth rates. And then their children and grandchildren they sort of assimilate and then sort of match the match the native rates. Um, but, you know, maybe we could maybe like flip it in the opposite direction. 
uh, by opening the borders. I don't know. I, I don't know if I agree with it, but but that is like one idea I've heard that might actually have uh, have an effect and and may actually at least to some degree uh, be be practical because you know at least as of right now the I think the pro immigration sentiment is relatively high in the U.S. Yeah, <laughs> that's definitely definitely shock therapy. Uh, yeah, I, I think it, it might have some some issues getting through even even now with <laughs> high high pro immigrant sentiment. Uh, I mean, I've I've haven't read the book, but I've, I've heard Iglesias talk about it, and I mean, I, I I do agree with you know kind of the the pronatalist stance. I think you know you kind of have to you know because we've uncoupled ourselves from you know the the biological imperative to have children you kind of have to have an, a bit of an extrinsic motivation to kind of support people or at least not make their life harder if they want to have children so on that part of the book i agree with the opening the borders part while while also having a welfare state which i know iglesias supports as well uh, is going to be <laughs> tough mathematically very tough <laughs> so, yeah um, well i think the, the welfare like that just wouldn't be feasible like once you have a billion people whatever kind of welfare state you you dream up just it just wouldn't work and so in, in that case i'm almost like well maybe maybe we'll you know but yeah, uh, maybe. Yeah, <laughs> if they take the welfare state i'm all all for it yeah that's we'll like what my, happens um my libertarian street i get what you're saying though about um you know the, the pronatalism argument because like I've heard this from, I haven't seen any data, but I've, I've talked to some psychologists about this and some of them suggest that, you know, part of the reason why younger people are taking so long to reach adulthood now, um, you know, there's even that phrase like adulting where like whatever, like paying your bills and like whatever, just doing regular things is seen as like this foreign, strange thing of like, oh, that's like, that's, that's what adults do. And it's like, you know, you hear like 26 year olds talking that way. Um, but the conversations I've had, people suggest that one reason for this is because they don't have kids, right? Like in the past, like 26 year olds had like families, uh, 40 or 50 years ago. Like it was just normal to like have, a, you know, have a spouse and children and like suddenly your life is no, not all about you, right? Like you have a bunch of other people to consider in your decisions, but now you have like people in their 20s and in their 30s, sometimes even in their late late 30s, who have no children and have no uh, prospects of having a family. And, you know, on average, those people tend to be sort of more self-centered, uh, less concerned with the future. And probably this has, has some effect on, on our politics and, and on what kinds of things uh, we talk about in the, you know, in the discourse. Mm -hmm. Is there like kind of an, an evo psych angle on on why people are delaying, you know, getting married, having children so long? Like why why is this like prolonged adolescence? Um, yeah, I mean, I've I've got some some theories floating in my mind, with absolutely no data to back them up. So, <laughs> uh, you know, the, I, I feel like you know people people really want to keep optionality. Like that's kind of what I've seen. You know, when I was you know living in the big city, being you know, working metropolitan girl in tech, you know, people just wanted to, yeah, to live that high option, high disposable income for as long as possible. And, you know, maybe they were a bit traumatized by their boomer parents who also had kind of a quite a quite a libertine lifestyle, children of divorce, you know, it just doesn't look very aspirational, you know, if, if you've kind of, you know, been left to the side and, and someone's, you know, vanity marriage or things like that. So I don't know, to me, to me, that that feels kind of, Maybe not. It's not the cause of everything, but it feels at least like it's a factor in, in the people that I know. Yeah, yeah, that's interesting. I I don't know if I've seen any 
like any specific research on this question about like why people are delaying uh, marriage. I mean, something related I've seen, I think this was Douglas Kenrick. He's a, an evolutionary psychologist. Basically he suggests, and so this, I guess is sort of looping back around to luxury beliefs. His idea is that part of the reason why highly educated people tend to sort of su support, you know, whatever sexual liberation and so on um, is essentially because they stay in education for so long, right? Like, you know, a typical sort of working class person, they go to graduate from high school, and then they start working. And then from there, you can sort of have a family or whatever. But, you know, for the highly educated, you know, affluent upper middle class and above, you go to college and then grad school and then whatever internships and so on. And then you don't really have your career going until you're in your like later 20s or early 30s. And, you know, if you, of course, like someone in that environment is, or going through those steps, they're going to support premarital sex, right? Because no one wants to wait until they're 28 before they can finally have sex for the first time. And so highly educated people sort of champion sexual freedom you know, for somewhat selfish reasons for themselves. Uh, and, you know, perhaps this is sort of another reason why uh, childbirth and you know, whatever, like why, why the birth rate is declining, because more people are going to higher education now. So at least in the U.S. context, uh, in the 1970s, only 13% of Americans had bachelor's degrees. And now it's somewhere around 30 to 35% uh, of Americans now. And postgraduate degrees, it's sort of following that same, that same track. And so, of course, like as more people spend more time in higher education, um, spending more time preoccupied with their careers and where they're going to live and so on, like they're going to delay uh, having a family for much longer. Yeah, I've, I've heard an interesting hypothesis about generations being <clears throat> being much more segregated from each other than, than they used to be historically. Like, you know, you have children, you know, being in kindergarten with people of kindergarten age, then in school, primary school, through high school, same age, college, same age, master's, same age, PhD, same age. Then even when you go into the workforce, then you're like working at a startup Everyone's the same age, uh, you know, even at McKinsey, even the people on your floor are the same age because you haven't, you know, graduated to, to, to go to the upper floor. So there's not really a mixing of people like back in the day, if you were like a mechanic or, you know, you were doing, you know, factory labor, you were with elders, they had families, they had children, there were kind of expectations baked into that, that whole situation. You knew what the next step was, you know, you're going to end up like Bob, who's, you know, a foreman and he's got a, a wife and two kids and that's what you should do. But now if you're kind of like in this milieu where everyone, you know, doesn't have a family because they're all the same age and there's no, you know, who, what, what's a family, you know, you should all just be working on the spreadsheet or whatever thing is, uh, thing is in front of you. Yeah, I, I remember this was a few years ago. Um, talked about this before the the Princeton mom letter. Uh, so this was, I want to say like 2013, right around that time. Uh, so basically, there was this. Uh, she was a she was a Princeton alumna herself, but her daughter was attending uh, that that college, and she wrote a letter. I think it was like in the student newspaper. She wrote like an op ed. Uh, basically urging uh, female students at Princeton to find a partner like while you're there, basically like encouraging them because I mean her essentially like the her argument was you, you're never going to be around so many young men who are worthy of you uh, ever again, right? And and so like she basically said like as you sort of move along your career, you're you're not going to have like this this giant pool of promising young men 
uh, and the backlash she experienced was was pretty severe. I, like I even remember, like I at that point I wasn't like super connected to like whatever media and culture and all that stuff. Like I was in the military back then, but even I remember hearing some talk about this, and basically like they called her like a traitor. I read I read about it more recently, and she was a traitor. <laughs> She's like. Um, I don't know, like a, a, a bad feminist or something. Uh, oh, are you still there? Cool. So, yeah, we, we had a little bit of a recording issue, but now we're back and uh, we're back with uh, an interesting subject. Because um, I'm, I'm thinking about, you know, what we were talking about, the fact that, you know, the the, the sexual landscape is, is quite changed. It's not, it's not as it used to be. Uh, and this is leaving a lot of, of men kind of disenfranchised, uh, you know, in the mating market. Um, and there's this uh, concept called the, the Bear Branches theory that I've discussed on, on a podcast with, with Vance Crow, and he kind of introduced me to this concept. Um and uh, it's it's essentially the idea that there's kind of a tipping point in each society where, you know, if you have a, a certain amount of men who have no prospects, you know, they're, they're not going to be mating, they're not dating, not doing anything. Um, it's it's kind of a geopolitical risk. Like, you know, there's, you know, there's trouble brewing because, you know, you've got that, all that all that misallocated testosterone that has nowhere to go. Um, I'm curious if you see that, you know, if, if there's a possibility for this to, you know, turn sour politically. Um, and, you know, if, is, is this something that we should be thinking about? Is it an option or is everyone too numbed out by porn? Yeah, that's an interesting one. Like, I, I've heard of that theory before. But my understanding is that it's it's somewhat contentious. Um, I've, I've heard other people or other researchers. I remember even yeah reading a paper about this where someone did some analyses on I don't know if it was China or somewhere else, but basically indicating that like surplus men do not necessarily or inevitably lead to uh, more violence or whatever. Like and, and in fact, it can sometimes go in the opposite direction. Uh, such that like in so like yeah in societies where the gender ratios are such that there are more men than women there's actually there tends to be more monogamy and less instability um, simply because like you know the men are uh, modifying their behavior to become more attractive to the relatively fewer women um, but yeah I mean like both of those sort of intuitively make sense to me uh, I, in, in the Western context, like, in, you know, I, I don't know, like, I, I don't really see, uh, you know, at least from what I've seen in, like, the statistics, like, it does seem like within the last year, violence has increased, homicide has increased, but a lot of that has to do with, like, the political movements going on in the U.S. and, and you know, I guess to some, some extent in Europe as well, but, but broadly speaking, the patterns of, of violent crime have been declining since the 60s which has been interesting. And I think like perhaps one reason for this could be basically like, like you said, like numbed up by porn, like guys just don't really feel like going out and whatever peacocking and showing, showing off anymore. They just sort of are content to hide away in their, in their uh, whatever their, their parents' garage and, and, and look at their laptops or, or play like world of Warcraft um, and sort of get their, whatever their their masculine thrills in in those simulated realities of fake war through video games and fake porn fake sex through 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 digital digital porn um but it, it's just odd to me like how this incel meme has has spread so much i mean there have always been uh young men who have been overlooked in the dating market but it's just now becoming this 
this uh, cultural trope. And what's interesting to me is that I know guys who are not incels in terms of the technical definition, meaning like they they have either have girlfriends or they're actively dating and relatively successful, but they share a lot of those same kind of like cold, cynical, uh, whatever, just just kind of like unpleasant views about relationships and women and monogamy and so on uh, that I've heard from like this sort of incel, uh, these incels or whatever, like it's, it's, there's a lot of overlap there. So I don't even know if it's, if you can draw a straight line from, oh, if you don't have sex, then you become the sort of bitter and cynical person who hates women. Like, I think it, there's something else going on. It's not just the sex. It's something else in the culture that's giving rise to these, these mm-hmm. kinds of feelings. That's just really interesting. Like I, I, I do have a feeling that all of this kind of red pill, MGTOW, incel knowledge is seeping out of these forums. Um, and it, it is kind of, it is kind of sad because it's, it's kind of like really concentrated and it's really kind of catalyzed by a lot of, you know, rage in, in these formats. But the problem, I think, is that no one else is talking about this stuff and no one else is trying to be uh, honest about, you know, gender dynamics. And, you know, these guys have a point. They really thought about this stuff and, you know, they, they might be full of rage while they're typing out their their rants. But, uh, you know, it's 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 quite informed by reality many times which is not the case with like if you open up gq and ask them to you know give you some advice on your dating life it's all going to be absolute bullshit uh, that has nothing to do with reality Uh, and then you know on the next page they want to sell you five thousand dollar shoes or something so uh, i think it's it's a fraction of reality that people get but i think the the packaging is, is is suspect you know i would i'd love for men to get in good information but maybe with less vitriol packed in <laughs> well so i so i definitely think like the the vitriol that comes with a lot of that advice is contributing to you know, some of this this bitterness but you know like you're saying so some of this advice isn't isn't um it's not necessarily wrong uh maybe it's flawed but but in terms of like does it does it do the thing that you want it to do like if men were to sort of adhere to those things does it help and you know a lot of it does and sometimes I think, you know, that can be sort of a problem in itself. So a while back, I remember um, reading this interview with a comedian. I, I might have been Jerry Seinfeld. I can't remember who it was. But basically, this comedian said the reason why he changes up his routine every so often is because as a comedian, if you tell the same joke and make the audience laugh, over time, you start to lose respect for the audience. Um, because you sort of view them as whatever puppets or something like, oh, I say these words and they laugh and you do that often enough, you lose respect for them. So they have to change up their act. There might be something similar going on here with like, you know, some of the guys who uh, go out and use these uh, red pill tactics or whatever and find that some of them actually work and they use them over and over again and find that, you know, more often than not, maybe it works. And I think that like that too can have this sort of effect of like losing respect for the person with whom you're interacting. Uh, and this too, I think, uh, ties into this notion of like, in a completely free, open sexual marketplace, um, those feelings too will will, will sort of uh, flourish, right? Where you can interact and hook up with as many people as you want and use whatever sort of, you know, consensual tactics you want. And if they work, uh, then over time, maybe this also breeds this, this sort of, 
worldview, this lack of respect or whatever. Yeah, that's yeah, um, it's 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 really interesting uh, to to look at also kind of how how people are are socialized and kind of um, how our society is trying to solve the the problem of of young men. And uh, I think one of the things that we've defaulted uh, to recently was to just kind of say, okay, men should not have aggressive impulses. You know, these aggressive impulses are toxic or, you know, they, they represent something that we don't want to include in society. We need to kind of teach men to not be like that uh, and then kind of socialize them like girls. And if they, if they, you know, depart from the, from the girl as standard meme, you know, there's something wrong with them. Um, and I feel like, you know, we've been doing this for what, you know, 50 years and, uh, or, or maybe more so depending where, where you're from, you know, less so in Eastern Europe, <laughs> we've just started here, <laughs> but, uh, it's, um, you know, I think, um, one, one other person I had on the podcast and one of my favorite Twitter posters is a uh, zero HP Lovecraft. And he has this really cool metaphor that, you know, the, the, um, pickup artists uh, rediscovered essentially what it is to be a man and they're selling it to to guys you know kind of the, the the manly man essentially the guy who's like really confident who you know doesn't take no for an answer is kind of like kind of have has this dominant warrior expression because essentially that's what PUA is it's like you know being being confident and manly and you know uh, negging and stuff like that it's just essentially kind of uh, the outward signs of confidence and it's essentially kind of reverse engineering manliness and teaching it, you know, by the piecemeal, by the by the phrase to to guys who have never been introduced to, you know, kind of old school Marlon Brando style manliness. You know, they might have heard about it, heard echoes about it in the culture, but it's never really been, you know, given to them on a plate saying, okay, this is what it is to be a man. They've just kind of told, you know, you need to sit down, take your ADHD meds and and shut up. So, you know, it's, I think, I think it's a really interesting way to look at it. And I think that there's something to it. That's really interesting. I mean, I'm thinking about, so I read that, uh, the pickup, uh, memoir, the, the game by Neil Strauss, uh, a few years ago. And if I'm not mistaken, somewhere in that book, Strauss says something like, you know, uh, a lot of these guys, whatever, like the, the, the gurus or the teachers, were like these sort of father figures to a lot of their students. And, and some of these students, you know, they either didn't, they weren't raised by their fathers, you know, they didn't have their dads around or they did, but their dads were just sort of like absentee or just didn't teach them anything. And so now these sort of like, I mean, Frank, like at least from what I gathered in the book, maybe it's different now, but like, at least in the book, like some of these guys were, were pretty weird. And like, you know, at least from my perspective, they weren't like that, like manly, I don't know, like a lot of them were like recommending wearing kind of, you know, odd clothing and like kind of the ways that they were talking to didn't seem particularly masculine to me. But these guys were searching for some kind of like male mentor or father figure or something. And those guys stepped in to like fill that role. And, and of course, like they were selling sex, which, you know, young men are, are interested in. Um, but I do wonder, like as fatherlessness has more and more become the norm and, and not even necessarily like physically absent, but just sort of like men who like, like masculinity as it's sort of on the decline. And so even if you have your father around, he's not necessarily like a strong masculine presence in your home. They, then guys will sort of find other ways to seek it out and, and go to YouTube and like, yeah, of course, like, you know, lots of people have written about like how Jordan Peterson has sort of fulfilled that, that void for, for a lot of young men who are looking for, uh, masculine male mentors and to me that that's that makes a lot of sense 
Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's uh, <laughs> if you do look at the at the POA community, there's quite a you know an interesting cast of characters there, and some of the tactics are a bit exotic. But it is, you know, it's, it's kind of like you know we're talking about like like supernormal stimuli, like. Uh, most men will not act like that. And in a way, you know, if you have someone who will act counterintuitively, like by, by peacocking or by being, you know, out there and or saying something completely ridiculous to someone in a strange situation, um, that's kind of like a, a costly display in a way of, uh, of confidence. Like, who the hell would do that? You know, <laughs> so in a way, if you're if you're the kind of guy who can't really just show up and beat his chest and be Conan the Barbarian and, you know, just throw a woman over his shoulder and take her home, maybe you just kind of have to, you know, <laughs> after you have to wing it with some some crazy shit and then and then women would be like there's something about this guy <laughs> I, I love right. i love his hawaiian shirt you know <laughs> why is he wearing that yeah you know just confuse her and then you can take her home maybe <laughs> yeah i uh so uh a couple when it was like a month ago or a couple months ago i posted this video on Twitter. It was an old ABC spot. This is like back when ABC was a little bit more edgy and they did this whole like, you know, episode focused on, on the challenges of being a short man. Uh, and it was, it was pretty rough. Like essentially like whatever, they'd have like focus groups of women through like a, a what is it? Like a one-way mirror or like men were lined up and then women could see them and basically say like, I would never date the short guy in that group. Uh, some of the comments on my Twitter feed were, were pretty, you know, some of them were kind of kind of rude, but like some of them were actually pretty funny. One guy suggested, actually more than one, said that if you're a very short man, what you should, you basically have to become Al Capone. Where like, you better go like, like wear like a custom suit, like wear like bling, like have like develop a reputation for violence. And if you're a very short man, like that is a way to sort of capture the attention of women. Uh, you sort of almost have to signal the opposite of what your sort of stature would suggest. Um, yeah, so so like maybe, maybe there's something like that going on. But, you know, sometimes I see people share other things on, on Instagram and social media and stuff, like screenshots of like negative interactions or like dunking or whatever on, on dating apps. Um, and I wonder if like this is also sort of breeding this kind of cynicism too. And this like, like I don't know if the signals are going to work anymore. Like you're saying, like if you're a guy, you're just like this massive asshole or whatever. And you know that's sort of you know following that handicap principle of like who would do this. But if like Instagram and all these like uh, social media apps are like sort of sharing all of these tactics publicly of like, can you believe what this guy said? And like a girl posts it, and then it gets a hundred thousand likes or whatever. And those tactics become just generally widely known. I wonder what the effects of that will be. Like if guys will continue to ramp it up and become like even more, uh, you know, unpleasant. Or if they will go in the opposite direction to distinguish themselves and become super nice. Uh, like, you know, there's always these signaling games, these signaling spirals that play out. And, uh, and, and I'm, I'm curious how guys will, will react to this. Yeah, I think it's it's probably much, much harder to do game on an app. Like you really have to crank up the Photoshop and I don't know, wear, wear lots of feathered hats in your photo set. <laughs> but yeah, I'm, I'm sure there's a way to do it. But yeah, it's, uh, it's, it's tough. I mean, I feel like, you know, a lot of these PUA guys, you know, have kind of been left out in the cold by apps, you know, because they've been training to do you know, face-to-face -face interactions with women for so long. And then, ah, actually, everything's moved on to the internet. Good luck. So it's, uh, I don't know, it feels tough.
yeah yeah and, and yeah i mean what are the what are the ways to like like what would be the the tech techniques or the tactics to like maximize success in something like this like the thing is like with the apps like a lot of the strategies i guess like these are things that women have known for for much like so basically apps have placed far more importance on appearance now like at least in the past you could sort of like get to know someone and maybe your personalities would vibe or whatever but with the apps, it becomes much more uh, about appearance, which of course, like women have a lot of experience with that. And they already know like how to take good photos and lighting and angles and all that stuff, filters and guys are less familiar with that. Um, I've seen, um, there are now websites where you can, you basically like, I guess it's sort of similar to like hotornot.com back in the day where like you can post photos of yourself and strangers will rate it on like various uh, different dimensions, like, not, not not like the like the big five personality, but basically things like you know how how intelligent do you think this person is? Uh, how attractive? How sociable? How interesting? And people can just put up like five or ten photos of themselves and let people rate them on all of these dimensions and then choose the best one. So I'm seeing like yeah these kinds of like different forms of of optimization for for the apps and yeah I uh, as it becomes more looks driven too, I think this will also start to like maybe leave more people, like men and women, maybe more so men, but like women as well, uh, like sort of out in the cold, um, because of course, like people want the most attractive person they can get. Um, interestingly, like this just, just uh, brought a study to mind, study on online dating in which the researchers, I can't remember exactly how they calculated this, but they basically found that on average people uh, message and attempt to like start conversations with uh, people who are 25% more attractive than themselves. That's sort of the average of like, you know, people want someone who's, you know, re realistically in their league, but slightly better looking, slightly more, you know, more desirable than themselves. Um, and I've suggested that one reason for this is because um, is based on other research by, by social psychologists in which they found that, uh, you know, if you sort of take photos of people and you manipulate some of them to be slightly less attractive, like 20% less attractive and 20% more attractive. And you show the three photos to people, the less attractive, the actual photo, and the slightly more attractive photo. And you ask, which one of these was the actual picture we took of you? Uh, people overwhelmingly choose the 20% more attractive photo. That's who they think that they look like. Is you know, They think they're slightly more attractive than they really are. Mm. Um, and I think this is maybe partially why they're they're going for someone who's slightly more attractive. Because they actually think, like, of course, that person is you know who I should match with because I'm a little more attractive than I really am. Um, so I think that's also something that's going on too. And, and this leads to inevitably, you know, disappointment because we usually aren't as attractive as we think we are. Oh, that's, that's quite the black pill. <laughs> <laughs> I think I'm just as attractive as I think I am, but I guess, yeah. These, these are just averages, you know, averages. <laughs> yeah. Well, um, before, before I let you go, I want to ask you the, the question of the show. I have a question of the show and it is. Do you have a, a thinker or a writer or a person that kind of influenced your thinking that you think deserves to be more widely known, you know, some, a subversive thinker, maybe someone who's kind of informed your thoughts? Oh, uh, yeah, that's a good question. I mean, there are so many, uh, you know, people who've influenced my thinking over the years. Um, I'm trying to think of someone more obscure that maybe your listeners wouldn't have, have heard of. Um, off the top of my head, like the thing is like, so this, so the guy I'm thinking of is Roger V. Gould. He was a, a Yale sociologist. He, he died uh, at a pretty young age uh, in 2002, but he wrote this book called Collision of Wills. Uh, and the basic, you know, the sort of bumper sticker or tweet version of this book is that um, 
when like as as status becomes more equal uh between individuals the likelihood of conflict increases which is sort of counterintuitive from what you would think um and that idea has has informed a lot of my thinking over the last uh, couple of years so the book's uh, collision of wills um i don't know if it's out of print but uh but it's definitely worth checking out i, I wrote a, a sort of whatever summary of this for, for city journal last year yeah that's super interesting yeah i mean when you said it i was like equality but you know when you think about inequality you think about like money inequality that's not status inequality and then essentially you kind of have status being a zero-sum equation and then you just have like these minor status frictions between all of these equal people that's really interesting yeah super super cool mm -hmm. Yeah, I think even for, for economic uh, status equality, um, something like that might, d depending on the, the context, even something like that might might increase the likelihood of conflict too. Um, but yeah, I, that that idea was uh, just, just totally floored me the first time I, I'd heard about it and sort of uh, did a deep dive on it. Yeah, it's it's super counterintuitive. Like, you know, it's, it's definitely not the, not the Marxist lens, but it's, uh, it's, mm. it's quite... Yeah. Quite interesting. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for for joining me. Where where can people find your your stuff? Uh, yeah, my website is robkhenderson.com. So Rob letter K Henderson, and uh, Twitter's the same, Rob K Henderson. Cool. And the newsletter. Please sign up to the newsletter. It's really really good. It's it's fun to read, and it's always kind of uh, you know jaw jaw to the floor type of uh, realizations every time I open up your your newsletter. So it's it's quite good. Yeah. Thanks, Alex. Cheers. Thanks so much for coming on. If you like what you're hearing, want to see where I take it, and maybe want early access to episodes, bonus episodes, access to the AMA, or you just want to support the cause of dissident speech or my work in general, head to my Patreon at patreon.com slash aksubversive. Your donations are what keeps the lights on and makes the show possible. So thank you 